1: people often ask how they can support more great stories from the wild and we really appreciate your asking thank you uh, the wild is a joint production of myself and KUW public radio and you can support this vital work and become part of the wild community by checking out our show notes there you'll find information about supporting my wildlife organization chris morgan wildlife through patreon help fuel the next adventure okay enjoy the episode guys Joe Blodgett learned how to fish from his father. He mastered the technique of dip netting a fish out of the Yakima River, the traditional kind of fishing for the Yakima nation.
0: And, and it was a great way of coming up in life. Um, you know, growing up um, on the reservation, we would travel a lot with my dad. And when we drove by Celilo Falls, he would tell me stories of what it was like to fish down there on Celilo before it was flooded and is gone forever now.
1: Celilo Falls was a meaningful fishing spot for the Yakima peoples and other native communities for generations. The 20-foot falls were located on the Columbia River, not far from where Joe learned to fish on the Yakima. But in 1957, a dam was constructed, and it caused the river levels to rise and completely flood out the falls. Joe's father remembers visiting the falls as a child before the dam.
0: He would explain the roar of the river, and how loud it was down there, and the spray that was going on.
1: In one local native language, Salilo means sound of water upon the rocks. At times, more than a million cubic feet of water could pass over the falls every second. The Yakima people used the falls as a place to fish and exchange goods. They had wooden platforms to stand over the falls and catch fish in nets, or with long spears. It's estimated that 15 or 20 million salmon swam up the river and passed through the falls every year.
0: The healthy river brought food, and the water it carried brought life. And just the amount of uh, people that would gather there to trade and to to, to barter and, and and to fish and uh, just the community atmosphere that it created and you know and and and, and um, the way it was. Um, so to speak, for the economy of the Yakima as a way for them to do some trading and and, and sustaining their their way of life.
1: But all of that was lost when the falls were flooded by the dam. Salmon numbers plummeted, and still the numbers are worryingly low. Fewer than 250,000 Chinook salmon are expected to pass the flooded Salilo Falls this year, a far cry from the tens of millions of the past. Today, Joe is a fisheries coordinator of the Yakama Nation. He's working to restore the remaining fish habitat of the Yakama River so the destruction of freshwater ecosystems, like what happened at Celilo Falls, won't be repeated.
0: We were directed by our leadership to make it like it was before we started destroying their habitat and before we started destroying the flows. Uh, Make it like it was is a directive from our tribal council years ago.
1: But that's easier said than done when you're facing a generation of infrastructure changes to the landscape and waterways. But this story is about just that, the mission to restore a watershed, starting with a single river, to truly make it like it was. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to The Wild. The waters of the mighty Yakima and Columbia rivers are important to Joe and his Native American nation. He refers to them as the bloodline of their culture.
0: We've been here since time immemorial, coexisting with, with this river system. And we rely on this river system and the salmon and the populations to sustain us spiritually, culturally, physically, mentally.
1: The Yakima Nation is located in the southern part of central Washington, but their original land stretched all the way up to Canada, over 200 miles from here. In a treaty signed between the U.S. government and Native Americans in 1855, the Yakima people lost most of their ancestral lands, but maintained their permanent rights to fish, including on the Yakima River.
0: We are actively working to uh, save a lot of these listed species that Um, are important to the ecosystem, important to our tribe, and just important that we um, can continue to do what we can to to keep their numbers or get their numbers back where they belong.
1: But so-called progress over the last 167 years since that treaty has done a lot of damage. Dams, roads, pollution, all of these things have really degraded rivers and their freshwater ecosystems for all of the creatures that need healthy habitats, including the fish.
0: You know, we do get a lot of benefits from the dams, the irrigations, the, you know, all, all of these, um, the logging practices. We, 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 we do have some short-term benefits, but it really has impacted the, especially the Yakima's way of life when it comes to uh, the salmon populations.
1: Over time, fish and other species can adapt to some environmental changes, but not changes of this magnitude. Water temperatures have risen, toxins seep into watersheds. The very flow, size and characteristics of northwest rivers have changed. So much of Joe's family history revolves around the big rivers, the Yakima and the legendary Columbia that it drains into. But the health of these rivers is determined by what's happening upstream in the creeks and streams that feed these bigger systems. So to repair the river habitat, to make it like it was, in Joe's words, we have to refocus, we have to head to the hills. One of the biggest things affecting fish and river health upstream are culverts. Culverts are these wide metal tubes installed under a road or highway. They provide a channel for the water to flow under the lanes of traffic. Imagine you're an engineer, and you're building a road that needs to cross several streams.
2: Without building a whole bunch of bridges, uh, we'll just lay a piece of pipe, a culvert, and just use that as a tube, a conduit, and just let the water go through there under the, under the highway and problem solved.
1: This is Dr. Paul James, a biologist with Central Washington University. Joe Blodger is one of Paul's former students. Now, these culverts that Paul is talking about might solve the problem of building a road over a river.
2: But when they were put in, the problems for the fish were just beginning. But uh, it certainly didn't work for for the life in the stream. Because depending on the flow, th- those were barriers to fish. Fish mm. couldn't, sometimes they couldn't even get into those culverts
1: Because the culvert, the big tube, it's sometimes too high up off the water or doesn't have enough water flow through it. So it becomes a man-made obstacle for fish trying to move through the creek.
0: You know, historically, the the tributaries were all connected. There was access to fish to get to every headwater. And and when you have the culverts that are uh, impassable for, for a lot of these migrating fish, it causes huge obstacles for them to to try and get over, and, and, and a lot of them, it's not possible.
1: So, in 2001, the Yakima Nation, along with 20 other tribes in Washington, sued the state, claiming that the culverts were partly to blame for fish numbers dropping, and that this violated their fishing rights guaranteed to them in the Treaty of 1855. 17 years, and one U.S. Supreme Court ruling later, the tribes won. So now, Washington State has to replace over 1,000 culverts and find a way to connect the flow of water, making a pathway for fish.
0: When, when, when we're in streams that, that contain fish, which is basically every stream in, in the state, um, needs to be replaced. We, we have the technology, and we have the capabilities of you know having passage for fish. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and more importantly, a lot of funding to do it.
1: The headwaters of the Yakima River begin high up in the Cascade Mountains, here at a stream called Gold Creek. Culverts have been removed here, so it's become a wild laboratory for all kinds of ecological research as this underwater world comes back to life.
2: And of course, there's no uh, graceful way to do it. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is snug, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Paul has brought me here for a spot of river surveying, if I can just get this skin tight dry suit on. You've got any lard or anything, just to... a. <laughs> yeah. The dry suit and full length fleece onesie I'm wearing underneath it is designed to keep me warm in the 40 degree water because today we're going snorkeling. All part of Paul's research as a fisheries biologist to monitor the creek's health and especially its fish. I finally managed to squeeze into the suit.
2: Now You're right, I, feel, I already
1: feel like a, pick, a pick, fish pick
2: a mask.
1: this parking lot we 're in is just off busy Interstate 90, a concrete archery that carries vehicles clear across the USA for over three thousand miles from Boston to Seattle. When this highway was built in the 1950s, it had to cross Gold Creek, so the creek was funneled into a culvert under a small bridge to prevent flooding and to make sure the water kept flowing. In 2013, this section of the highway was up for repairs. So at the same time, plans were drawn up to restore Gold Creek, plans that included removing the culvert.
2: The decision was made to, to open that back up and to open the floodplain the way it was originally. And so that small bridge was replaced with a huge bridge, about a 1,000 feet long, mm-hmm. um, and that will allow terrestrial animals to move uh, either side of the interstate under that bridge.
1: The land creatures now had a way to get under the highway, and for the fish and other aquatic species, boulders and large logs were placed in the riverbed to create new habitat.
2: So they were just put in probably five or six years ago hmm. to see if, if they indeed are are, are habitat that, that fish are using, you know, if they want to migrate through from the lake up into the stream under the bridges, do those habitat structures really help? It's all about how to get a fish across the road, That's basically. Exactly, is it? yep.
1: Well, under the road, of course. The main purpose of the surveys that Paul does is to assess how and when bull trout and cutthroat trout are using the stream channels that have been restored since the culverts were removed. These species are key indicators of creek health. Where there are trout, conditions could be good for returning salmon too. Water that's clean, cold and flowing. So Paul's here to count fish. Standing at the riverbank right under the highway, explains to me how it works
2: and with two of us what we'll try to do is kind of i don't know just kind of leapfrog yeah you know you'll be searching around some area and a lot of the fish are not just swimming out in the open but they're hidden down in little crevices Mm. so you just want to kind of look in every little spot between boulders and in the in the in the logs and sort of the root areas.
1: The data that he and the Yakima tribe and the Forest Service collect here over time reveal how well the stream health is doing and if the fish are coming back. Information that can then be used to improve other stream crossings around the state.
0: <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> oh, this is awesome.
2: I love that reaction. Every time someone does this for the first time, it's the same reaction. This
1: is so cool! The current is so fast, I'm just surrounded by bubbles from the torrent of water flowing past me. This is a small stream, only about a foot or two deep, but it's really hard to stay in one place. I have to use a rock climber's grip on the riverbed just to stop from being swept away. And being below the surface is like being in another world. A world we'll dive into after the break. First of all, when you get down there, the sound of the highway completely disappears. It goes, it goes completely silent. It's super, super peaceful. I pull myself along underwater, grabbing a rock or a dead branch where I can. It's really energising, especially anticipating what I might see. That's cool. There's so much going on. Yeah, I move a little further up the river. Eyes down, snorkel up. Oh, look at this right there. See
2: this right there? Cloudy! Oh, oh. See it? What is, what is that? That's a baby sculpin. I mean, that thing hasn't been hatched out very long. That's tiny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised the other sculpin hasn't eaten that one. Really? Wow, good eye.
1: The sculpin's a small fish, only about three or four inches long with prehistoric-looking features. They live on the bottom of the river. They grip the substrate with sharp rays on their fins, anchoring themselves in fast-moving water. They feed on insect larvae and other small prey, food species that are at the foundation of the ecosystem. A lot of the insects that you see flying around your garden or the park or especially around a stream or a pond get their start in the water. When you see them flying, that's just a tiny part of their life cycle, mainly just to reproduce. Most of their life is spent in a different larval stage, in water like this. One of these creatures is the caddisfly, a fish favourite as any angler knows. Paul and I quickly spot several of them on the bottom. These little creatures are indicators of freshwater ecosystem health and they're food for a lot of fish and birds.
2: So those caddisflies really come out, don't they? Yeah, I was just studying one for ages there, I just watching it. It's amazing they can cling onto a rock so effectively, then, you yeah, know, you look at, in like, such strong current, just effortless, like they're just crawling along, no big deal.
1: The number one job of any creature living in flowing water is to figure out how to stay put, not get swept away. The caddisfly does this right where the water touches the rocks on the river bottom. A thin layer called the boundary layer and down there life is pretty calm
2: almost like there's no flow at all and so if you're small enough and flat enough as a bug you can crawl around in a (laughs) in a torrential stream that we could never walk across and they just be gliding along Munching on algae on this rock, Mm. and the whole world above them is just going by really, really fast. Like
1: being on a windy mountain top and finding a little bit of a leeward. (laughs)
2: Exactly, (laughs) and you're down there, and yeah, it's that's that's their life.
1: A few caddisfly varieties actually use the current to their advantage. They have an ingenious way of catching delicious particles of algae to eat.
2: They will actually construct something that looks like a volleyball net on a rock, and it just gets filled with these particles, then they just eat the whole net in particles. and particles. <laughs> sometimes you'll see a tiny little cluster of maybe three or four tiny little pebbles that are like glued together, and that's what it is. They've glued them to kind of weight their net down, and they just kind of wait until that net gets full, and then it's a pretty clever way to collect food because, you know, <laughs> build it and wait. Yeah, the passive <laughs> hunting kind of technique. Yeah. yeah.
1: Paul's enthusiasm is infectious. He's always felt this way about river creatures. He remembers when he was a kid in the Ozarks. His mom would take him and his brother to a little stream by their house.
2: She would sit in the sun and read a book and just give us little buckets and nets and say, here, go, just leave me alone. Little did she know she was forging your career. (laughs) Exactly. So I was naturally drawn to just wading around a stream and just looking at everything that's alive and picking up rocks and trying to catch a frog or a tadpole or or something. And who knew that 30 some years later, I'd, I'd still be doing that.
1: Still be observing those details. The many species found here in this little creek help build a picture of the entire watershed and how it can be restored and what's needed to protect it to benefit the mighty rivers downstream. Paul has found something else he wants to show me in the river.
2: So if we crawl up closer, I just saw a couple little whitefish that are in the water.
1: We both move in carefully, lowering into the water.
2: So just slowly crawl up and we'll see if we can find them. Okay. Right where the water starts to ripple there.
1: Among all the bubbles and ripples of the water, I see several small whitefish. They're facing upstream. Constantly moving their bodies to swim and stay in the same place in the flow.
2: Did you notice how wow, that looks exhausting? Looks like they're doing a lot of work, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And they're sitting there. So why are they there? Well, they're just sitting there, feeding. They're just picking constantly.
1: These are juvenile mountain whitefish. They live in fast water and pick at little bits of food as they float down river. It's really dangerous for fish in open water because it's hard for them to avoid predators.
2: But not where they are, because they're in fast water down at the bottom. Uh, so it'd be tough for a kingfisher or even a heron to even see them, because mm. they're using that turbulence actually as a as a form of cover. Those bubbles that you were talking about, yeah, that's actually kind of cover.
1: With my head under the water, something else sips by. Something even higher up the aquatic food chain.
0: Oh yeah, yes, a trout. A trout, a trout.
1: (laughs) Paul hears my muffled cries and pops his head up out of the water and asks for a few more details to help identify the fish.
2: Now, tell me, are the spots just uniform across the body, or are they denser and and bigger towards the tail? They look denser and bigger towards the tail. Eggs, okay. That is a cutthroat trout. The rainbow trout would have uniform spots throughout the whole body. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, nice job.
1: The caddisflies and whitefish were one thing, good indicators that the creek is nursing itself back to health. But the trout are right up there with salmon as prized species for Paul to document as they come back because they need cool, clean water. And because they spawn upstream, They need a clear route free of those human obstacles. So removing culverts has been key. The trout live in a slightly different part of the river to the whitefish. They prefer to hang out in the calm water, in the eddies behind big rocks or under logs.
2: They'll just sit and they'll find that, that perfect spot where they don't have to expend a lot of energy, but they're close to all this food that's just flowing by them all day long and they just dart out and grab grab one of these bugs.
1: It's amazing to see so up close and personal some of the things that are happening in barely a foot of water as this creek slowly comes back to life. The different niches each species occupy and their tactics for survival. Each creature is like a missing piece of a puzzle that's slotting back in. Paul has made a life of observing this world and he still can't get over it.
2: Look back where we came from. It's just a shallow little stream. Yeah. I mean, how interesting could it be? But it really is a whole world. It really is. And you only have to be in eight inches of water to experience it. <laughs> That's what I'm amazed that A little tiny stream, not even knee deep, is a whole world if you get under there with it.
1: And meanwhile, the 18-wheelers are trundling <laughs> overhead. It's just, it's, it's surreal. Almost. But you know,
2: isn't it nice that we've seen, I don't know, five or six native species of fish doing what they do. And, and a huge highway right above them. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of amazing.
1: And the creek survey is showing positive results. As well as the cutthroat trout, bull trout are finding their way back into streams like Gold Creek too, places they had been blocked from since the construction of the highway. Bull trout are a federally threatened species. They need cold, clean water year-round. And if a river can support them, you know it can support salmon too. About 20 miles from here, Gold Creek flows into the Yakima River, which then joins the Columbia River on out to the ocean. So what happens here in the mountain headwaters affects everything downstream, including the future hopes for Joe Blodgett and the Yakima Nation.
0: We're hoping that we're gonna have self-sustaining fish populations that are um, also harvestable for, not just the Yakima nation, but for, for the people that, that live here and continue to do the work with the salmon to where someday these fish are able to come back up in the connected basin and get where they need to get to and, and be able to, to spawn and repopulate.
1: The Salilo Falls that Joe's father remembers as a child may be gone. But Gold Creek offers some real hope for other rivers and the whole watershed of the Yakima. We can't reset the clock on all the changes we've made to our natural ecosystems, but when we can, life is ready to thrive again, and not just the insects, fish, and other wildlife that call these rivers home.
0: You know, I, I want, I want to again someday have my son teach his son. Um, the traditional ways uh, of fishing and and see the success and and just pass on that part of our culture and that part of our life and um, Have that continue
1: In some ways a full circle to the thriving freshwater ecosystem that it was I'll definitely be looking with different eyes the next time a bridge carries me across a river or my leg stretches over a creek in the mountains How a tiny trickle becomes a mighty river filled with life just beneath the surface. I might even start carrying a snorkel in my pack There are some great underwater shots of my time snorkeling with Paul. Head on over to our Instagram at the WildPod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. I'd like to thank Charles Strom and everyone with the Yakima Nation who helped with this episode. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by the people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organisation, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Mark Wilkins, and Rebecca Badger, Bob Yellowlees, Barbara Stolman, and Annie Mines. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Cara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm Chris Morgan. We hope you're enjoying The Wild enough to tell your friends about it. We're out to inspire as many people as possible. Thanks so much for listening, and take good care of each other.